and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Mitch from Planet 5D joins me today to discuss all kinds of cool stuff. We've got 4K from Canon, we've got the weird Zoom HQ, and even more cool stuff. Mitch, what have you been up to, man? Well, listen to you. You are just awesome today. You've got a little preview and everything, even though you're in a wacky location and had to completely reset your entire studio this morning. Oh, man. So the story behind that, folks, if you aren't watching the video, is that basically I'm being moved today. The studio is getting completely evacuated. I will end up in Vancouver, Washington, for those of you wondering where I'm going. And so I basically cobbled together an entire studio out of random bits and pieces from another computer that wasn't being packed. So... Uh, Mitch and I had a little bit of early show struggles trying to get everything <laughs> sorted. Cameras were locking up, all kinds of fun stuff. But now we are on the air and we are live. What about you, Mitch? You mentioned that I shouldn't ask about it, but I'm going to ask now. What are you doing? <laughs> it looks like you're standing up. I am standing up, as a matter of fact, DJ. I I have a brand new stand-up desk. It's oh. called Cardboard doc- Boxes. Doxes? Boxes. <laughs> L- like literally cardboard boxes? Yes. Um, actually, my iMac was actually on one cardboard box before because I kind of like it more at eye level than my desk allowed. And so I've been talking to people about doing a stand-up desk for a while. I also wanted to practice for NAB because I'm going to be walking and standing for five uh. days in a row. And so I thought, what the heck? I'm going to elevate this. And so I've put it on a couple of cardboard boxes and I've kind of protected it so the cats don't knock it down. But I'm trying a stand-up desk for the next couple of weeks. I actually see a cat there in the background as well. Yeah. If oh, you... Well, we, you know, we have five, so oh, they're man. usually in here. When the rest of the family is gone, they all come in here because I'm the only one that will talk to them. So on the stand-up desk front, uh, they make – I don't remember the model number, but uh, – it's this really cool deal. It's uh, two pieces of Unistrut in the back, and then the entire desk slides down to desk level and then up again, but it sits on top of a regular desk. So I know they're a little expensive. They're like 300 bucks, but that's one option. The other one is, I don't know if you've already looked into this, but there's the IKEA hack, and right. you basically buy like three pieces of IKEA furniture, and then somehow you mod them together into a giant conglomeration that makes a pretty decent stand-up desk as well. So Great. just a few well, cool options. I will want one that goes up and down because I do get tired periodically, and I don't want to stand all day. Uh, Hugh Brownstone, one of our writers, actually did a story about uh, maybe about a month ago now because he's researching stand-up desks. So if you want to know a little bit more about stand-up desks, go over to planetfyd.com and search, and you'll find Hugh's article. And we're going to continue to do a follow-up because I'm I'm really curious about it because I know that, that one that goes up and down, and I can't think of the name of it right now either. I think it's very desk. That maybe. sounds right. Um, but I'm not sure it will fit on the desk that I have because I have a – a desk that's curved that goes in the corner. Yeah. So it, you know, it's on both sides and there's a riser in the back. And I don't know that that will fit with the riser. I might have to take the riser off in order to do it. But I also don't want to just replace my whole desk because then you start getting in real big bucks. Well, I so, think uh, I depending know. on how hefty your desk is, the one I'm thinking of, it actually screws into the top. It's got two plates on either side. 
and it's designed specifically for an L desk. So it has a four hole and a four hole, and you do have to drill holes in your desk. So if you love your desk, that might not be the best way to go. But otherwise, it it basically hooks onto your normal desk, and then it rises from there. So when it lays flat, it's basically just a thin keyboard stand that goes right. over the top of the regular space. But keep me posted. I'm interested to find out. I've been thinking about getting one for work, but uh, standing up all the time didn't sound quite like the right thing, you know, so I wanted something that would go up and down so I could sit for half the day or a quarter of the day. Um, I don't know if you know Zach, and I, for some reason, cannot remember his last name. You know, this, this I'm going to say no. <laughs> um, he's, he's, he was, uh, Burn Notice was a TV show that he edited for a long time, and he's an editor. Uh, we did a podcast with him last summer, and he does stand-up desk, and he not only does that, but he has a treadmill underneath. And what? he walks all day long. He gets in like 30,000 steps a day. It's amazing. Holy crap. But that he, guy must be in really good shape then. Yeah. If you want to check out his website, it's called Fitness in Post because he's trying to get uh, editors and post, post, come on, Tong, post-production guys to stand up and exercise and eat well because they tend to just sit on their butts all day long. So go to fitnessandpost.com and check out Zach's website. And I know we're not a health uh podcast but that's so true you sit at the desk i've got a really comfortable chair here i try to sit forward when i'm in the desk so that way i have to keep my back up straight but if i if i'm like slouching or being lazy my back starts to hurt all day you know Uh i have to watch what i eat because if i'm eating junk food while i'm editing all day i tend to really just put pack on the pounds it's i don't know all right yeah yeah. on that note his name by the way all right thank you sir Zach, right. uh, wait a minute, Zach, where can you find that again? Fitness and editing? Fitness and post. Fitness and post. Uh, um, All I'll right. Put it in the show notes. We'll put that in the show notes. Moving on to the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. First up on the list, we've got the Zoom Q8. This was announced yesterday and appears to be basically a Zoom H4n strapped to a video camera. This thing is really wacky looking. It's got uh, interchangeable XY pattern microphones, but it also has uh, combo jacks and XLR slash uh, quarter inch inputs on the back of the unit. It does shoot at a strange resolution as well. It's a little bit higher than 1080p. It's 2304 by 1296, which is 1.2 times 1080p resolution. Has a fixed focal length 16.6 millimeter f2 equivalent lens. Mitch, what do you think of this strange, weird device? I don't know what to think of this. Um, I I first saw it when you published the show notes to me last night, and I was like, holy cow, what in the hell is that? I don't know what to make of this. Why are they suddenly getting into the video market? Have they ever, has Zoom ever done a video product before? Actually, know? they do. They've, um, in the past, they've released random kind of strange cameras. And uh, the idea was originally that these cameras were designed to capture live performances. So Zoom in the past, and I can't remember the model names, but you can look them up if you're interested. They had basically sort of an action camera that was a large box, probably the size of twice of a uh, twice the size of a large cell phone, and it had the camera in front, and then it had the XY pattern mics on the top. This is seems to be sort of an evolution and going almost into the handycam phase. Um, maybe if you need really great audio, but this isn't really it, it's not an action camera because you know it's not waterproof, it's not super durable. This is a plastic device. 
I'm not really sure what you use this for. Maybe live performances is the way to go. You can run audio into each one of these from the mixing board and then just set these around the stage, possibly. I don't I don't know. It does does have those XLR inputs, which is kind of interesting. I mean, it basically acts as a recorder, like you said. Uh, but with video, it's just really a unique device. Uh, for those of you looking for more information, uh, I've got a link to that in the show notes. It does have a touchscreen display, so you can kind of go through the menus in that manner. It also allows you to remove the XY mic and replace it with one of Zoom's other compatible microphones. So that does give you the option to possibly use this with some of the stuff from the H6. So those are a few different ways to take advantage of this strange random device. It's also priced at three ninety nine. So I suppose yeah, I was just it, looking at that. That's not bad actually. Um it's not. You know, I don't know what you'd use it for, but if maybe if this was um you know, 16 millimeter, that actually might be okay as a uh, webcam for this sort of thing, actually. And now if you have XLR inputs, maybe that uh takes advantage of the fact that you have a good mic with you and everything else, and maybe you could use it for podcasts like this. I don't it, know. It, I don't know, because it, the B&H website that you link to in the show notes uh, does say that it doubles as a USB webcam and audio interface. So, Man, this is just a, a very weird... interesting device. Yeah, and it then the, the resolution, 2304 by 1296. Where <laughs> did they come up, up with that? that? <laughs> yeah, I don't have a clue. I mean, that matches nothing. Well, I actually, I had to, I looked at the number and I'm like, that, that's that got to be an increment of something. So then right. I actually had to get the calculator out and figure it out. And sure enough, Uh-oh. it's 1.2 times uh, 1080p. So that's where that 2304 by 1296 comes from. And it's a one third inch CMOS sensor. I don't know how well this will do in low light, but I guess if you need a Zoom H4n with a, a video capability, go right. for it. Well, and it's definitely aimed at things like uh, webisodes or something like that because it it only apparently does 30 frames per second, so you can't switch it to 24. So you're not going to make it into a movie-making machine, but... Yeah, you're right, Mitch. I didn't notice that. All the frame rates are either 30 or 60. There is right. no 24 on this. Right. The Kodak looks rather compressed. Uh, audio Shocking. sampling rates are pretty amazing. It gives you a ton of <laughs> audio options. I mean, it, it might be a really cool uh, webcam or, you know, if you're going to do a selfie video, like you're out in public or something, maybe you, you want to start doing your own personal videos. Maybe this would be a small, handy little device. Huh. Uh, but, but then again, why not use your iPhone? Now I'm looking down at the <laughs> bottom of that, and there does appear to be some other versions of this. They've got the Q4, which uh, looks like it's just the uh, XY audio adapters on the top. Then Sony's got one that looks almost the same. So maybe there is more of a market for this than I really understand. And they're all priced in that 299 to 399 range. What a wacky bunch of stuff. Uh, for those yeah, of you looking, the Sony is a HDR-MV1, and the smaller version of this, the 299 version, is the Q4. I think I'm going to leave that at that and move on down the line to Small HD's announcement. Small HD, who was bought by who again, Mitch? Vitek. Vitek. Uh, looks like they're innovating again. I really like the 5-inch form factor for monitors, and the DP6 was kind of in that range but then the db7 it by the time you add the bezel and everything else it's uh, somewhere in the range of about eight inches across so they're rather big 
I'm happy to see that they've announced the small HD 502. This is a 5-inch across 1080p monitor. It's uh, 441 pixels per inch. So uh, the big bragging rights they were posting on the link I have here in the show notes was that it's got a higher resolution screen than the uh, iPhone 5 or iPhone 6. And this looks like a really petite little monitor. Mitch, what do you think about this guy? Do you know anything I don't know about it? I don't. I actually just saw this yesterday as well because it was announced, I think, yesterday. Was that it yesterday is, or the day yeah, before? Yeah, I believe it was there. yesterday. Um, I was teasing that I actually had a prototype, but I held up my uh, <laughs> iPhone and, you know, okay, if I if I blinked out the little apple there, you might think it was really a prototype, but uh, it, it looks awesome. I've, I've, I agree with you. I've always sort of wanted a really small monitor. And this one looks like it fits the bill. Unfortunately, we don't know the pricing yet. Yeah, that's a little um, little disappointing. I was hoping for a little bit more information on this guy. Yeah, small HD doesn't tend to have the lowest prices on the market, uh, so I don't I don't know where this is going to fit in. And it's it's I you know thicker than an iPhone because they've got some extra stuff, and you can put uh, Canon batteries on the back end. So it looks like it's got some great capabilities. I'm sure we'll be checking this out at NAB, of course. And, of course, if you're going to tune into NAB coverage, go to NABLiveBlog.com coming up in a couple of weeks. Now, I'm looking through the uh, information on this little guy right here, and I'm actually displaying the screen for those of you watching. So uh, there you go. But uh, this is pretty thin, three-quarters of an inch thick, uh, six ounces uses a the same style of battery adapter so you can use pretty much any battery you want and no price now i also brought this up on ebay and if you look here you'll see the original small hd dp6 which is a monitor i still use to this day and really enjoy and if you look around on ebay uh there's a 596 599 uh you can usually score one of these in the uh, $500 range. So keep an eye out for that. If you can't afford, I'm guessing this will be in the $1,000 price range. Wasn't the DP6 when it was originally released like uh, $999? Yeah, it was just under $1,000. Yeah, Yeah, so uh, keep an eye out for that. That might be uh, a, a cheaper way to go if this is really expensive. But at least they're doing something cool and new. Hopefully the price will come down after a while. Do they still sell the DP4? I don't even know. Is that a really a viable option anymore? I hate to say it, but I don't go to their website often enough to know that they're still selling that. So I'm, I'm looking right now. Oh, no problem. I'm looking right now, <laughs> and it does look like the DP4 is still for sale. That's kind of interesting because that's a pretty low-resolution monitor compared to everything else they're offering. And now most of the competitors are offering 4- to 5-inch monitors with at least uh, 1280 by 800 displays. So hopefully they'll upgrade the small HD DP4 as well. Moving on down the line to something I completely missed is the Amazon cloud storage. I know there's cloud storage available, and I've used the MP3 format, but apparently they were also providing, since November unlimited storage for photos and raw images and that was for prime members and now for $12 a year you can also take advantage of that same photo storage I use a server downstairs a free NAS server that I made myself to uh, store all of my backups but man this looks pretty tempting and I pay for prime already it's free Mitch are you a prime subscriber 
I am not. Uh, I probably should be. My daughter actually got a Prime subscription for being in college. She got it at half price. So we're kind of testing it out. Is that some kind of like college benefit or something? Yeah. Yeah. So we've been ordering everything through her ID. Shh, don't tell Amazon. Um, And trying trying it out that way because I'm tempted to, you know, like dump my cable and – and just go with Hulu and Amazon for watching repeat shows or something. So we're toying with that whole concept, but that's not something we want to get into here, right? No, no. Uh, but I'm I'm curious. How does have you tried this yet? Is it just like Dropbox where you have a a, a storage spot on your hard drive and it just uploads to the cloud? Well, for the uh, music version, and I've tested that out. You basically point it in the right direction and it starts uploading. It isn't as friendly as Google Drive where you have a folder that you just drop everything into. But I haven't tested out the Prime Photos yet. I just saw this yesterday pop up because they announced that they were going to offer the $12 a year option. And I didn't know that since last November they'd actually been offering the full version for Prime members. So... I don't really know how this is set up yet, but it looks really sexy for, you know, for something I'm already paying for. Uh, Any kind of mobile storage or backup online that's free or included with some other subscription makes that subscription a lot more valuable. Yeah, Uh, I'm especially curious because I'm currently using Backblaze, which is $5 a month, you know, do a backup just in case. Yeah goes up to the cloud well heck if i can get this unlimited storage for 12 dollars a year that's that might put some of those people out of business well and i pay a substantial amount more for my google drive account and i believe yeah that's a a hundred dollars a year i think or a hundred and twenty dollars a year and uh i i have a reasonable amount of storage i think it's like 200 gig now or something like that (laughs) but i don't use that for raw images i only use that for uh, edited photos in JPEG. So yeah. I have a folder that I just dump my uh, output JPEG from Lightroom into as my backup, but that's not really a good backup because you don't have the raw files anymore. Well, do you know, you know, Dropbox, obviously. Yes. You know, you've heard of copy. Yes. It's virtually identical to Dropbox. Well, uh, last year, two years ago, a year and a half ago, some time ago, I did a post on on Planify-D about the two, Dropbox versus Copy. And at the time, Copy was offering a sign-up where you got five gigs, I think it was, when you signed up. And if you got somebody to sign up under your affiliate link, then you got five gigs as well. Okay. Guess what? I have two terabytes now of (laughs) Copy space. Wow. For free at this point. Um. And so I've actually taken my entire main drive and just made that be in the copy folder like you do with, with Google Drive, you know, or the Dropbox folder. Yeah. So, so I've got my entire one terabyte drive now backed up <laughs> on copy space because I'm getting that for free. But Man. it works great. It took like a month to get it all up there because it takes forever. But now that it's there, it's just silently backing up in the background. So I'm about to drop um, Backblaze anyway. <laughs> yeah, two terabytes is probably pretty <laughs> decent for most yeah. things. Uh, yeah. Honestly, one of the things you never think about when you pay for internet is uh, the upload speed. I 
originally had just, you know, a DSL here at the studio and it was taking forever to upload a YouTube video or to work on anything. And it, it was ridiculous. And I started looking into it. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I only, I have uh, 20 meg down, but I only have one meg up. Right. And so you're just hitting the bandwidth uh, cap right away. Now I have, I think I'm up to 15 up now and uh, 60 down or hundred down. And yeah. That makes so much so much of a difference when you are trying to put a video online, especially when it's almost a gig and your backup. You know, taking uh, like a week or a month to back your stuff yeah. up that almost makes it yeah. impractical for the regular person to to take advantage of. I'm looking right now trying to figure out what the size of my photo collection is, and it's still counting up. And I just passed the uh, 450 gig mark, so. Yeah, yeah, mine is something like 600 gigabytes right now, um, and I use Aperture as my library. So, uh, but it's these these photo libraries get so big so quickly; it's ridiculous. Now, what do you use? For, you use Aperture for management. Do you have any tips or tricks that you take advantage of to kind of like organize stuff? Do you use keywords when you're loading your photos in, or anything like that? Oh yeah, I do. I do everything by date, of course, um, in terms of the project name, and I do keywording, of course. Okay. Uh, it's it's so much harder to do after you do it when you do the upload. Uh, but you know, everybody complained of the fact that theoretically Aperture just like hides everything in you know an invisible location, and I I've always been like, I don't care where you put it. As long as you put it somewhere and you keep it safe, I'm fine. Uh, but I'm also sad because Aperture's dead now, and Apple's decided they're not going to upgrade it anymore. And so I may be switching to Lightroom because their new Photos app isn't going to do what Aperture does. Yeah, but, you know, I think it's fairly safe to to um, assume that Apple's going to come up with something new. They uh, they've been working on some other stuff, and there's been talk of some sort of like iPhotos sort of conglomerate coming out. So I know they discontinued Aperture itself, but I think they're going to do something else, aren't they? I... Their 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 replacement for iPhoto is called Photos. Okay, so that's what's and, going on. Yeah, and the previews that some people have had, there have been some writers that have had access to photos and they all say yeah you can't do everything you can do in aperture it's it's got some basic adjustments I mean, you know apple has blessed their souls uh done some things right and done some things wrong uh killing the professional photographer thing is not something that i really appreciate but they ha they basically are taking all of their apps except for final cut pro so far knock on wood and they're making them compatible with the iPhone version, the iPad version, or the iOS version. And so they all basically have the same feature set, which is great for somebody who's swatch switching back and forth between the machines. But if you want the extra features, you got to buy another program. And the fact that they're killing Aperture is just killing me because I really <laughs> love it as compared compared to Lightroom. But now, will you be able to bring your photos, I mean, the the files that organize your photos into the new program without any issue, or is there some sort of yes. like... Okay, so... Yes, you, you can take your Aperture library and convert it to a photos library, and it will retain all of your changes, like if you've made adjustments and that kind of stuff. But going forwards, you don't have the kind of adjustment layers like you do in Photoshop, which Aperture has a whole bunch of real sophisticated 
adjustment layers and you use paint brushes and all that kind of stuff. Those just don't exist in the new Photos app. So if you move over, you can't go back. You're stuck. And maybe so most uh... people, you know, like me, I'll probably stick with Aperture for at least the next version of the OS until they get to the point where they start supporting it, stop supporting it, in which case I might move to Lightroom. But for now, I'm just going to stay because I don't want to learn something new. Well, as far as I understand, uh, you can import Aperture stuff into Lightroom directly. Uh, they yeah. released a tool as soon as Apple announced that they were killing Aperture. And Lightroom for me has been an awesome upgrade. And I, when I first started, I used uh, the DP Professional that comes with the regular Canon cameras. And compared to that, it's night and day. And I suppose it's like going from Aperture to the new photo app that you were explaining. That's doesn't sound like a really good tool it kind of sucks that they're no. doing that to people no i mean it's it you know you can kind of think of it as switching from final cut to premiere pro i mean it's they both work sort of similarly but there are nuances that you have to learn in each and so you know switching from aperture to lightroom will be a pain but i just i'm just not ready to bite the bullet right now i know what i'm doing in aperture and so until it like sort of croaks i'll be okay Speaking of bite the bullet, it does look like <laughs> Canon is biting the bullet and releasing a 4K camera. Mitch, I kind of grabbed this link from Planet 5D, and I'm looking at this goofy-looking uh, point-and-shoot, I guess. <laughs> what it's do you know about this guy? It is, I, I saw that in the notes, and it's not, it is not a point-and-shoot. And as a matter of fact, according to my sources, who will remain unnamed, uh, this is the camera that will be announced at NAB as their video camera for 4K. I don't know a whole lot of details other than what I've grabbed from from the images that have been posted online. It was a little confusing to me because what happened is that Canon over in China or Singapore, I'm not sure exactly sure where because one person said China and the other person said Singapore and whether that's part of China, I don't know, I don't know <laughs> what the details are. I'm sorry for all of you international people who are watching and listening. I'm sorry. I don't keep up to exact. Anyway, um, so there was this presentation, and Canon uh, China executive brought out this new 4K video camera. And it almost looks to me like it's prosumer kind of thing because it has a lens on it that, is, has 10x optical zoom label on the if you look at the stills that were uploaded yeah and it looks almost like it's a fixed lens but one of the other stories said that they they said during the presentation that it will have PL mount as well as an EF mount oh really so, yes so this this is really a new generation of handheld video camera because it looks the body looks very much like a dslr it looks to me almost like the canon c100 kind of shrunken down into a smaller form factor and it's going to shoot 4k it supposedly has a one inch sensor which is smaller than the, the other sensors in the market um yeah, you're going to have oh. some crazy crop factor with that. I'm looking one-inch yeah. uh, CMOS sensor. The, yeah. It's probably yeah. not going to be a low-light monster. And when I saw yeah. the 10x optical zoom, I assumed right away that that was a fixed lens, not a not right. an interchangeable lens. So that's yeah. kind of strange. 
Uh, I don't have a whole lot of details, but my source has confirmed all of the specs that were listed in there, which was the removable hand grip, uh, a detachable uh, uh, EVF or uh, electronic viewfinder, which is shown in those pictures, but it's, it was not demonstrated as part of the kit that he was holding. Uh, but I've also been told that this is going to be announced at NAB, so... We'll see how that goes, but it, this is this is not a, just a little chintzy prosumer thing. This is this is in my mind a part of the EOS Cinema line. Man, now I have two questions. I wonder what the price is, and the second question is why in the hell did they put that stupid handle back on the camera? Uh, I don't know. And if uh, the picture you're showing in the live view, by the way. At the back of the camera, there's a there's a little sort of a box. It looks like where you put the uh, CF card or whatever kind of card okay. is there, it, and it just looks kind of dorky, to be honest with you. It was right below the LCD. Yeah, I'm looking at this now, and so I don't that, know. That looks very plasticky and chintzy. Uh, the pricing on this, if this is a one inch sensor as opposed to what you get out of the uh, the rest of their um, crop sensor cameras. You're probably going to be somewhere underneath of the four thousand dollar range because isn't right. that about where the C one hundred original is filling in right now? So maybe this is the twenty five hundred dollar or maybe a three thousand dollar range. I don't know. I don't know pricing about that either. <laughs> Excuse me, but uh, obviously, if they want to compete with the other guys that are shooting the GH four and the A seven S, they've got to come with something fairly inexpensive. Um, but at the same time, you know, Canon's not a price. They're not really into price gouge, not gouging is the word I'm looking for. But they're, <laughs> I, they're not going to fight Panasonic on the GH4 at $1,500. They're just going to say, we've got quality. We've got the best lenses. Uh, you know, take this or leave it. And, you know, a, a lot of people still complain about the C100. Well, it's not the perfect camera, blah, 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 blah. blah but, you know, it's still selling like hotcakes. Yeah, I know a lot of people that swear so, by it, and uh, yeah. I was called a uh, a few names for not, uh, <laughs> you know, endorsing the C100. I myself hated it, disliked that camera immensely, but uh, there's a lot of people that use it, so obviously it has a market. I wonder, and I'm looking at the specs again, the one-inch CMOS sensor, you know, we've seen one-inch sensors in a bunch of these uh, new point-and-shoot cameras. Uh, Sony has a one-inch sensor in their 4K shooting uh, handycam sort of device. Um, I GH or the uh, Panasonic, uh, what is that? The G7, GH7. You know, the one that's uh, it's got the fixed lens, the super zoom, and right. it's got a one-inch CMOS sensor that also shoots 4K. I wonder if there's some uh, sensor sharing going on here where Canon maybe picked one of those out of the bin and then threw it into a, a Canon body <laughs> camera. Yeah, I, I love that thought. Uh, Canon has always done things where in their pro line, I think they, they typically are believed to have their own sensors. But in the point-and-shoot game, they've, I think they've been buying their sensors from Sony, right? I think you're correct on that. A lot of the uh, Sony so, sensors end up in both Panasonic and Canon camera bodies. So it wouldn't surprise me uh, because there wasn't any mention of like the dual pixel AF or anything. Now, again, we have just gotten real early preliminary specs on this and, and the presentation in China certainly didn't talk anything about real detailed specs, but 
Uh, I suspect that they Canon would save the dual pixel AF for their pro line stuff and not put it on their consumer stuff. Now you were talking but, about uh, dual pixel autofocus. You've got another note down here: the uh, Red Rock Micro Cage. Is that correct? Prototype. Can you tell me more about that? This is something that came to me last night from Brian over at Red Rock, and I don't have a whole lot of details on it. It's all I've gotten so far is preliminary comments from him as well as two videos. They sent me a behind the scenes and they sent me the actual commercial. They did a, a spec quote unquote commercial for a wedding ring company or something. I've forgotten exactly what it is. It's, it's a little video where this guy and this girl are out for a picnic and the guy proposes and it's shot with a movie and this new red rock thing i don't even know what it's called yet they haven't really called it anything i'm assuming they're going to be showing it off at nab in a couple of weeks but the concept is that it's 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 like having dual pixel af which comes on the canon 70d as well as now the c100 and the c300 yeah in that you don't have to have somebody pulling focus for you and in the demo, they've got it on a Movi M5. They've got a 5D Mark III, and they've got Red Rocks. Uh, uh, I forgot what he calls it. I'm sorry. I can't never remember these names. But so is this it's, an it's, adapter that goes with their focus-pulling system? Because they had that wireless system last year that used right. like an iPhone, or they had the general controller slash uh, motor driver for your focus-pulling so right. does this work somehow with that in order to pull focus automatically for you then? Well, when you watch the demo, and I, what I, I wish I could remember what it's called, but they have like, uh, it's, it's, it looks like a, a Dustin, boom mic. Or a, a, okay, so it's using a, either a sonic or a laser it's, style right, rangefinder in order to determine right. the distance of your subject. Correct. So it's using that, which they had shown off several years ago that they've and they've had that for a while. Okay. But they've somehow configured it with the motor system so that it is constantly doing the focus for you. And in this one man band situation where this guy was going to film this this sort of a one shot commercial where they follow the group into the park and then, you know, they walk around the actors and use the movie to make it really smooth and slick. And all of the focus is done by the system as opposed to the, the operator having to have a, an external uh, autofocus guy or trying to do it manually. So it looks really cool. I, I don't know anything more than what they sent me in the videos yet. Just came to me like 1030 last night and Brian said, here, you can publish this if you want. Like, okay, so I'm trying to understand what's going on. I'm looking right now, and it says uh, it's using the Red Rock uh, Micro Remote, which is their adapter we were talking about a little bit earlier, uh, in a prototype focus tracking system. So right. I'm looking at the video, and it does appear that this is one of those either sonic or uh, laser light reflector systems that uses that to measure the distance of your subject from the camera and then adjust your focus accordingly. Now, if that's the case, they're going to have to do a bit of setup on this because you'll need the range for the lens itself in order to get the focus distance forward right. and backwards. So right. I wonder what it takes in order to get this calibrated to work in the way that they're demonstrating in the video. I mean, 
he's really running around with this and moving all over the place. And it seems to be doing a pretty good job of tracking. So they have to calibrate that to a specific lens they're using in order to get the focus correct. Right. I'm not sure how that works. This is, this looks interesting. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, there are already some devices from Red Rock as well as a few other companies that uh, basically either send out an audio pulse that's uh, ultrasonic or they send out a laser light and that measures the time it takes for either the audio signal or the laser signal to reflect off the subject and come back to the item. And uh, now it is back to the Hello. future time. I'm going to have to decline. Man. Hello. That's something it's you're supposed to shut off during a podcast. I'm, yeah, it's down. The guys downstairs want to know where you want to put the couch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can well, actually—they're moving my TV right now and uh, everything in Uh-oh. my living room, so I can hear that going on behind the wall. Thankfully, <laughs> this Rode Procaster mic is only Yay. sensitive right in front of it. So, good job on that Rode. I can't hear anything unless I lift up one headphone to take a listen. Um, this thing looks pretty interesting. I wonder what the price will be. Uh, their, their micro remotes were pretty spendy. Weren't they in like the $3,000 range or more? Right. A lot of it has to do with the motors. Yeah. Um, Motors are not cheap in order to do that kind of really fine adjustment. And with the fact that you're, you're putting together the sonic thing, as well as all the motors and the gears and whatever this autofocus device is. I'm not expecting it to be cheap, but at the same time, if you're going to do a lot of solo projects and you don't want to necessarily have a uh, an AD there to do focus pulling for you, maybe you can save some money in the long run by going solo. Now, so, speaking of we'll affordable items here, I've actually got this in front of me, and uh, this is from uh, Lux Falcon. And it is a 12-foot-long carbon fiber boom pole. And I just got this in. It was a little bit of an endeavor to get it here. They only had a limited amount of stock, and they sold out right away. This is one of the most affordable uh, carbon fiber boom poles on the market. It's even lower price than ProArm's offering, which is in the 240 to 250 range. With shipping and everything, this 12-foot boom pole was about $170. And wow. it doesn't come with the internal mic, which is... Something you're going to have to build yourself, but for the price and for the size and the distance, this thing is really light and well-configured. I haven't got a chance to hook a microphone up to it and use it yet, but just feeling it, I normally have an aluminum pole that I use, and this is probably half or a quarter of the weight of that. It's nice and solid, and if you look here for the video viewers, um, it's got an extra little dropout on the bottom so that you can install your mic cable through the center of the unit and then actually tuck it in there if you'd like, or you can not use that and just wrap it around the outside. It's also got an adapter on the top as well. So if you unscrew this here, you can actually pull the end cork off and it's got a little cutout so that you Ah. can install a mic all the way through for $170, man, it's a pretty good price. I pretty excited to get this out in the field and mess around with it some more, but, uh, it feels good so far, and these are brand new. I believe he just released this model uh, last week. The picture in the show notes here, and I'll move over to that right now, is actually of the previous model because I didn't actually get a chance to take some photos of this. And before, as you can see on this, there was an adapter in order to attach the mic 
and a, a small hole pierced in the side of the deal. <laughs> so this has evolved over time. It's gotten better, and the newer models are substantially nicer looking than the previous version. So I think he's doing a pretty good job with this. It sounds like this is a one-man band uh, manufacturing outfit. So Lux Falcon carbon fiber boom poles, uh, definitely something to check out. Uh, Mitch, you've done some short films and stuff before. Did you have a sound guy bring in his boom pole, or do you have your own equipment for that? Or We were testing out some road gear when we did that. Uh, and, of course, road has you know pretty much everything when it comes to sound. You've got to <laughs> give them a cha-ching there. Um, but I've never done the job of holding that for a long period of time, and I don't know that I could stand there and do it like some of those guys do. Of course, you've got to do some practice, right, in order to build up those muscles to hold that up. One thing I want to ask you, though, is looking at it on the video, it looks like it's a really – oh, thank Uh-oh. you, cat. My cat just tried to jump on me and fell down. Sorry. Uh, it, the hole at the top end, is that big enough to drop an XLR mic plug through? Okay, so if for those of you not familiar with uh, uh, boom poles, traditionally what happens is they'll sell you the boom pole and then you actually solder in your own cable. So you can't slide the XLR top through here unless you're using a mini XLR. So what you end up doing, because most mics don't use a mini XLR, especially professional boom mics, so you end up uh, cutting a wire to the length that you need. In this case, this extends out to 12 feet, so you'd want to cut something in the 15 to 20-foot range to go through there, and then you solder on your own connectors on the top and the bottom of the unit. It's a little bit more work, but then you're not relying on a cable that's pre-manufactured. And if you've ever taken apart the XLR adapter on some mic cables, if you get the cheaper ones... They're pretty iffy. I mean, one really tiny bead of solder on, you know, 18-gauge wire, all it takes is a bit of motion to bust those up. So that way, when you build this yourself, you have something a little bit more solid. Now, some of the more expensive boom mic poles do have the cable built in, and instead of having this dropout with just an open space on the bottom, they actually have a specialty adapter uh, that's uh, basically an XLR output right here, a male, so that you can plug right into the bottom of it and then unplug your cable. And those are pretty cool, but when you get into that level, then you're talking somewhere in the range of uh, $800 to $1,000 for the boom pole itself. And those, the other thing that's um, kind of back and forth with is that they use a spring-type cable through the center. Right. So it's right. a curly Q cable that stretches out. And that's fine as long as uh, you're using it and it's staying stretched out for a long time. But if you're packing it up and closing it open and closing it and opening it again, you're going to end up wearing that cable out after a while. And then you do have to dissect your pool pole itself in order to replace that. So right. I, it's kind of, you save some money not having it installed, but it also means that you have a better connector and stuff like that. I've installed them in the last three or four boom poles. I've bought, I'm looking at the road ones right now. Do those have the cable included or is that another deal where you either have to slide it in or solder it in? They do it both ways. Uh, I had the one with the curly Q cord in it, which was really nice. And Phil, I ended up losing it because somebody didn't return it to me. Uh oh. Hate that. But um, yeah, it was the curly Q wire on the inside, which I'm wondering. I mean, you're an expert at those kind of things. Does is there enough? cable when you if you don't have the curly q wire on the inside when you compact the whole thing 
Does it all like bind up on the inside? No, it doesn't bind up. There's not enough room in the center of these for the uh, straight cable to bind up. Instead, it just pushes it out one side. So what you end up doing on something like this is you, this top portion here, you slide this down and it tightens onto the top of the cable to keep it from coming out this direction. So you set the length you need for your uh, blimp. And then on the other side, you just roll up the cable when you're done. So as you collapse or extend this, you just roll up and Velcro off your cable on the other side. And that's also, you know, I don't want to criticize the curly cue because that's also a good option. The rolling right. your cable up, it, it is sort of a pain because now you have a roll of cable attached to a stick that you have to maintain as well. So the curly cue one, as far as design goes, it's a lot more convenient. It's just not as convenient when the cable finally dies from stretching and unstretching. Now, how long does that take? Honestly, yeah. I would say if you get a good curly cue setup, and I haven't tested the road ones, but I've used some of the others out there. Uh, Ro, Rocat, I believe. Or, uh, I'm not right saying coat? that. Right coat. Thank you. Right it's coat. got a Y in it. It starts with an R. Um, <laughs> their version, I've heard people using that for eight to ten years before they wore out the cable. So that may be something that I'm worrying about that isn't really as much of an issue as it seems like it would be. Uh, same with the soldering the cable. Honestly, I've soldered one into my last boom pole, and it's been in there for six years, and I've never had any problems with the, the ends failing on me or anything. So, you know, maybe that's not really an issue at all, and I'm just uh, overly concerned about the, <laughs> the movement and the motion of the cable. But yeah, uh, that's the way it, it works on these lower price ones. And this is the cheapest carbon fiber one I've seen, but if you are really strong and willing to hold up a heavy one, there are, uh, Rode does make some uh, aluminum boom poles for as low as, it looks like $49. Uh, they're, wow. they're fairly short here, but I'm seeing on Amazon, uh, what is the length of this guy? Looks like, oh, okay, never mind. These are designed specifically to go with the Rode VideoMic Pro, so... They don't have a heck of a lot of stretch here. And right. actually, I'm going to just show this picture now so everybody can kind of see what I'm looking at. Uh, it looks like these units are designed only to stretch out about uh, six feet or so. Uh, it's not really designed to go really get in there deep. But if you have a Rode video mic, it's like the entry level system, right. I believe. They do make, and I'm trying to find it now. Here we go, $149. Looks like this is the larger aluminum one, and this has a 10-foot reach. So, yeah, if if you're strong, <laughs> then you can hold this up. Um, the carbon fiber is quite a bit lighter, and honestly, for me... I cheat a lot. If you take your boom pole and you actually press it up, it, I wear a belt. So if you kind of catch it in your belt loop, you can kind of right. keep your hand straight out and then your arm doesn't get worn out as fast as you're miking. And for outside, that's fine because you're usually miking down and towards the chest. But if you are inside and you have low ceilings, then you have to kind of do some other stuff, you know, get the pole down lower or whatever in order to get kind of underneath your subject and point up instead. So... It's kind of, you'll get used to it and maybe work out, lift some weights or something like that in order to uh, build up some muscle mass. Well, it it sounds like to me, if you want to be a good sound guy, you've got to learn how to solder too, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, that's definite. I build my cables custom for everything. Uh, honestly, if you're getting any kind of blimp, even though they include some mics or some mic cables, the short, you know, eight inch or 10 inch ones. You're usually going to get a better cable and a better cable connection if you build it yourself. 
And a lot of times, especially if you buy like a used blimp, you'll need a special right angle or a swivel end or something like that. And having a nice soldering iron in order to build it yourself just makes things so much easier. And it, yeah. it's not that hard. You know, it's not beyond the grasp of most people to solder a wire to an end piece. And you can go to Amazon, you can go to B&H, you can go to Mauser sells them as well as DigiKey. Uh, you can buy them on eBay. All these different companies sell these different connectors. And what's really cool is if you get fancy, they sell versions that are both uh, XLR and quarter inch, and they allow you to adapt to all kinds of stuff. So especially if you're building your own cable, you can really get crazy with things and just connect whatever you want to whatever else you want. Cool. Now, You are the king of DIY, aren't you? Yeah. Well, okay, one more thing on the soldering, and I'm just going to say this now. (laughs) Buy a good soldering iron. Uh, yeah. Go to one of the companies that sells the the nicer units with a good heat pot. Um, SparkFun has some really good units and some good demos on them. If you buy one of those cheap, like $10 crappy Radio Shack ones or whatever, they don't solder very well, and they're probably not going to last you very long, and the tips go bad really fast. So if you have a lot of soldering to do and you plan on building 10 or 15 cables, maybe that's a good investment to spend you know, 30 or 40 bucks instead of 10 or $15 on a nicer soldering iron. Also, learn to use an ohmmeter. Uh, your, your cables start going south on you or you're having trouble with cables. If you have a good ohmmeter, you put your ohmmeter on both sides and it'll give you a continuity check across the cable to tell you if the wire is good or not. Because a lot of times the cable will get kinked somewhere in the middle or bent or whatever, and it'll either give you a high ohm resistance rating or it'll give you a weird like short or open that comes and goes. So having an ohmmeter is a good way to visually see that as opposed to you know using your mic and then getting crackling noises. Man, I am just really popular today. I'm going to have to hang up on them too. Man, who is calling me? It's like seven or eight, no, it's eight in the morning here. So that's kind of a little bit early to start blowing up. Moving on down the line here, we've got, uh, oh man, I forgot about this. This is the, um, well, they, uh, okay, so DB, uh, DB Review dot com just did a good interview with the head of Olympus, and it's Huno. Ogawa? Am I saying that right? Huno Ogawa? I'm not very good with the the Japanese names, so someone correct me if I'm uh, mispronouncing this. But there's a few cool things in here, and I just kind of highlighted the stuff that I was interested in. First, they asked him about 4K video and if we would be seeing those features in the future cameras. And they kind of hint here, and he mentions basically that it's very processor-intensive and that it's a trade-off between that and their image stabilization so I think what he's kind of getting at here is that Olympus's image stabilization system takes up a ton of compute power from the internal CPU on the camera in order to maintain that level of stability. And maybe that's why we haven't seen 4K yet in the Olympus cameras. What do you think about that, Mitch? I think that's probably very true. Uh, not only is it obviously image intensive but they got to have little motors in there and just working their little hearts out and something's got to be come on tongue controlling that so it 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 was always interesting to me that canon put two processors in the 7d and nobody else has really done that i mean even canon hasn't really done that and and so i'm not sure why olympus doesn't necessarily just go in and throw in an extra processor just to handle the sensor. Maybe there is in there, and we just don't know about it. Uh, the sensor stabilization is what I'm talking about. But 
it definitely is going to be taking a lot of CPU power. Well, and the dual su- uh, CPU that was used in the uh, 7D, it's not really necessarily that uh, Canon isn't using dual CPUs or quad-core CPUs now. They're still using ARM-based processors, so they do right. have multiple cores on the chip. But with the implementation for the 70, I believe, they were basically using that to crunch the incoming raw footage when you're in burst mode because the 70 was able to, what, uh, oh, seven or eight frames a second, I believe, in burst mode originally? Oh, uh, <laughs> you expect me to remember those kind of numbers? Come on. Anyway, the, the point I'm getting at is that uh, that was because the processor technology when the 70 was released about three or four years ago wasn't quite up to snuff for where it is now. Now you have quad-core processors and even eight-core processors coming in ARM packages uh, across the board from Samsung and many of the other uh, repackaging companies that take their processing technology and put it into the chips. So I'm guessing already the Olympus and even the uh, uh, Panasonic GH4 have a quad-core chipset inside of it taking care of that. With this, it might be more of an I.O. issue. So for those of you who aren't familiar with CPU design, uh, you have so many inputs and outputs, and there's analog inputs, and uh, there is digital inputs and outputs. Uh, The controls on the chip, you have a limited number of channels in which to control analog outputs and analog inputs. With motor driver systems, you're going to be eating up at least two, sometimes four channels of analog outputs in order to send information to the motor drivers themselves in order to operate the motors that are moving the sensor around. So if this is five axis, you take that times five, and now you have 20 outputs being used up on the CPU. So that could be the reason why is simply because there's not enough I.O. to deal with it. And on the other side of that, you also have to have sensor inputs because to use the five axis image stabilization, you're going to require an accelerometer as well as level meters to measure the horizontal and vertical positions of the camera itself. So now that's eating up a bunch of analog inputs coming in, plus all the digital I.O. coming from the chip that's actually capturing the image and everything else. And you add that together and it could just be too much bus bandwidth for the CPU itself. Does that make sense? Wow. That makes a lot of sense, and you really know some stuff. <laughs> uh, some other cool I'm stuff blown. in the announcement here, and I'm going to get away from the super nerd talk, is um, <laughs> the air. Apparently, uh, we've talked about the air in the past, and this is something Mitch and I both were this is pretty excited about. It's a little tiny like uh, uh, aerosol-sized can that is basically a camera without a screen on the back and that guy is going to be released in japan and they're going to be doing some testing on that to see how customers like it if the market sales are good enough in japan then we might be seeing this in the united states the other thing that he did mention in his interview with uh, dpreview.com is that they are limiting right now the access to some of the controls of the camera itself for that DIY thing that we were talking about in a previous podcast. And if you don't remember that, basically what's going on is the Air is open sourcing all the controls and stuff for the little box and allowing uh, developers to get access to the SDK in order to develop for that device and develop apps for your phone. So depending on what they allow those guys access to, we could see video features that are pretty awesome. We could see uh, photo features that are pretty awesome and many other processing things that are really cool. I still kind of want this. Mitch, do you remember the price? Wasn't it like three ninety nine when we yeah, translated was, that over? I think that, 
I think that was right, three ninety nine ish somewhere in there. And and I'm very interested to see how this works. Yeah, this thing, <laughs> it looks really cool. I I love stuff like this. Um, Sony didn't do as awesome of a job with their fixed to focal length system. Or not fixed right. focal length, but uh, built-in zoom. But this is interchangeable, so it really does make it a little bit sexier. I'm rolling down it really to the... Isn't... Oh, go I'm ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Oh. Finished. Okay, well, I was going to move on to discussion, but it sounds oh, like well, you have something important to... I was, I was just going to... Everything I say is important, DJ. You should know that. Of course, of course. Of course. Uh, I really... I, I enjoyed this article, and, and people should dive in and find out more about what has to be said. Uh, it's always fascinating when you get to, to read a little bit about what's going on in at the chief executive officer's head's... So I just I really enjoyed the article and you guys should read it. Yeah, and one other thing is they're not just talking to any old guy that took over as a CEO. This right. guy was in their right. research and development department at Olympus for somewhere in the range of thirty years before he finally got promoted up the chain to their uh, head imaging. You know they have weird labels for their managers yeah. and CEOs at uh, some of these photography companies. But I mean, he, he's a really knowledgeable guy and he's really answering some cool questions on this. And yep. you can dig in deep and figure out kind of what Olympus is up to. And I know I'm uh, stretching a little bit with that IO stuff on the controller and the processor itself, but you know, that almost, I'm, he's almost really obvious about it. Like, I'm, I'm surprised no one else has kind of gathered that information out of that particular interview. So yeah. definitely go check that out, dpureview.com. You'll find that in the show notes. Moving on to the discussion stuff here, I got a few cleanup items. First off, uh, the Sony A7S, there's a new firmware out for that. Uh, the firmware is fairly disappointing, other than supporting new lenses that are available from... Uh, the Sony store, I guess all their announced lenses over the last uh, three weeks or so. Uh, that's pretty much all you're getting out of that. Uh, the 5DS, now available for pre-order on BNH. So swing over to my site or planet5d.com and click one of those affiliate links because that helps us do this sort of thing. And if you want one, go pick one up. <laughs> also moving down, I did pull the trigger on that Olympus 40 to 150 millimeter f2.8. And cool. I also managed to squeeze in the 1.4x extender to go along with that. Total price $1,300 on eBay. So wow. that is really attractive. And for those of you who are in the market for this Olympus 40 to 150 millimeter f2.8, uh, they do have refurbished models available on Olympus's website right now for uh, $1,200, I believe. So the extender, and man, this is why I jumped on this, is it was a buy it now on eBay. And <laughs> you know me, I buy lenses on eBay all the time. Well, the extender itself is around $300. The lens itself is around twelve to $1,400, depending on whether you buy new or refurbished. And the combo together was $1,300. So I saved somewhere in the range of 400 bucks or better wow. on this combination. Hopefully... It's not all scratched up and nasty and covered in goob or whatever, but uh, usually I've had pretty good luck with eBay, so I'm not too worried about it. Mitch, are you ever going to take me up on the buy-in on eBay? Actually, I'm I'm laughing because uh, yesterday uh, Wednesday, I was looking at a whole bunch of EOS M cameras and adapters and stuff on eBay, 
and I might actually bid on one of those because you got me you got me hooked in terms of testing out the EOS M for purely video stuff, and I I could use an extra camera every now and then. So if I can only spend 150 200 bucks and have an awesome video camera with a great sensor like is in the Canons, then I'm gonna try it out. Thanks to you. Hey. So I'm I'm diving into eBay. Do you have an eBay affiliate link I should be using? Oh What's man, um, I will post one in the show notes so that you can get through that. Uh, one other thing to note, and we're moving on to the pick of the week here, and I'll just throw this out here, is if you're trying to save money, one other thing that you can save money on is flash heads. So I've got a flash right here. This is the Yongio uh, 568EX2. And this guy is under $200. And it offers up all the features of the 560EX and I'm not quite as many features as the, what is it, the 670EX, I believe, or 680EX is the 680. The 680. Yeah. yeah, so the 680, the difference between this and the 680 is that this does not have the built-in wireless module that allows you to remotely control the other units. But it does have the IR blaster on this so that you can control visually across that as opposed to using 2.4 gigahertz bandwidth. But this guy right here, I use this alongside of my 580EX2, and it works great. And it's a quarter to half the price of the 580, depending on where you find it. So definitely check these out. They're very nice. They work with most Canon accessories. And on top of that, and I'm reaching over here just a second. Uh-oh. They're, they're daughter boards here. So if you are looking for 2.4 gigahertz control, this is completely ETTL compatible. And these guys are also like $50, $60. These are not transmitter receivers. They're transceivers. So they actually allow you to send out your ETTL from your camera to multiple flash heads and for those to register information and send them back. You can also set up groups in these guys. So if you want certain strobes or certain flashes to go off at a brighter level or a lower level, you can set them into A, B, C, or D groups and then set the output level for each of those so that you can really design and shape your light for some good flash stuff if you're into that. So check out the Yongio uh, 568EX2, well worth investing in. Mitch, I see you're grabbing something there. What do you got? I've got this just this week from Cinevate, and it is called the Morpheus. I don't know if it shows up very well in this light. Um, it's an and I haven't quite gotten it balanced yet. I have my iPhone in here. It's a handheld stabilizer for small cameras like the iPhone and the GoPro and stuff like that. It it has mon multiple functions if you buy the whole kit. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying out the stabilizer. I'm thinking about using this at NAB to walk around the show floor and do some iPhone video stuff with, which is why I've gotten it. Uh, but it also has on the feet, if you if you take the feet, uh, you can screw on uh, wheels. And so you can use it as a slider. And they it came with some carbon fiber rods, which I have over in the corner. Uh, but it's called the Sony, uh, the Sony Cinevate Morpheus. So I'm trying this out. Just got it. Still trying to stabilize it. It's a little tricky, but they do have... On their website, they have balancing techniques for each individual phone. Okay. And, and, and cameras like the GoPro and stuff. So they give you a head start on the balancing system. 
like any kind of stabilizer, you have to do this balancing thing. But once you have it balanced for your particular camera, it it like locks in place, so you don't have to rebalance it every time you go out to shoot, which is cool. And how much how much does that guy run? It's three ninety nine. Three ninety nine was the price. Yeah. Now yeah, they was that giant phone on there the uh, iPhone six. Yeah, the uh, six plus. Yeah. Man, that thing is huge. It is big. Yes, sir. Sorry, I got distracted by the phone. I was looking no, at it. Okay. I'm like, holy crap, that thing that's is okay. big. When you said small camera and then you held that up, I was like, or large <laughs> tablet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's actually part of the problem is the fact that it is so big. And I apologize. It's $169. I had to look it up. Oh, $169. That's not bad. It's not, which, which I think, I mean, you have to kind of look at the different ways of doing it because uh that 169 is for the slider version oh okay they, they told me that more of the people have been excited about the slider version than the handheld part but it all works together in one big piece so i think you have to add the uh the handheld uh stabilizer version i think that's probably an extra but anyway uh it it works really well i'm really excited to try it out it's light $169 is pretty cool. Now, I'm going to go ahead and do something we haven't done before here, Mitch. Uh-oh. And uh, I've got this thing working sort of now where the questions are showing up on the right-hand side of my screen. I don't know if they're showing up for you or not, but uh, a few of people have been asking some questions. First off, uh, looks like Media Unlocked has asked us, you guys going to show up at NAB? Mitch will be at NAB. I will not. I am in the midst of a move, as I mentioned earlier, so... Things are just not going to work out this year for NAB. But Mitch, you'll be there, right? I will be there. And if you are listening out there in the real world, if you go to nablogblog.com, you will see our live blog, which will have 20 to 40 reporters. We're still recruiting people. If you're going to be at NAB, go ahead and send me an email at planetmitchatme.com, and we'll chat about you doing some reporting. And it is not a paid job. I had one guy write me and say, hey, how much are you paying for that? I'm like, sorry. This is just <laughs> like, if you want to contribute, there's a whole bunch of websites that are going to be showing this. Example, DSLR Film Noob has a little tab at the top. If you go to that, you can see the NAB Live blog on DSLR Film Noob, but you can see it on Plan 5D as well. There are going to be, uh, I'm, I'm right now working on a, a major website which I probably shouldn't name, but the letter starts with, or the, the name starts with a V and it ends with an O and they show a whole lot of videos. Uh, they're talking about showing it on their website. Uh, anyway, there's Canon Rumors is going to do it, photofocus.com, stage32.com, which is a really awesome website if you've never checked them out. They've got like 250,000 members now. Oh, and wow. There's a whole bunch of, it's, it's photographers and filmmakers and there, it's a place where you can share your bios and projects that you're working on and look for crews and stuff. But Sage 32 is pretty cool. You ought to check them out. One more question from the question list here. Uh, Power Steel TV writes, uh, what's the best camera you recommend for people who are starting out? And he has a price limit here under $1,000. So Mitch, do you have any recommendations or do you want to <laughs> just default to me? Uh, I would never just totally default to you unless it was a lens question. I uh, I tend to t- steer people towards the EOS M now. <laughs> hey, <laughs> wait a minute! That was my pick. 
Well, but the first question has to be, do you want to shoot video only or are you going to shoot stills and video? Because Absolutely. it makes a difference, right? Because like you said, the EOSM sucks at still photography. Video. Right. But but for stills, we're not going there. Um, Hugh Brownstone actually really loves the SL1, which Canon puts out. It's really inexpensive. I don't remember the price. It's like six ninety nine or something. Um, is the SL one? That's their super zoom, correct? Or is that the smaller version of the original T two I? It's the smaller version of the T two I. Okay. Um, he really likes it. He ended up selling his Canon five D Mark II and buying two of those and uses them simultaneously. So he was really happy. It's got the same sensor, you know, as the T two I and all that other stuff. Uh, and of course, it shoots stills. It's a really small body, which I don't particularly like, but it's it's relatively inexpensive. So I've been steering people that direction based on Hugh's recommendation. I've never tried one, but if you want to do both, that's a really inexpensive option. Of course, the T4i, T5, I'm sorry, the T7i, 12i, 14, <laughs> what number are they on now? Uh, I, I believe know. they're on the six, six. now. Yeah. So, but. Uh, and and it's still, believe it or not, the T3i is selling better than all of them. Yeah, you know, honestly, okay, so if you're in the T uh, the T series line, I know that everybody wants to flip out screen, but Magic Lantern but, support for the T2i is phenomenal compared to the rest of the Rebel series line. Uh, they have full audio output support, full control support, full everything works. You don't have to worry about caveats about this not working or that not working. So if you want a full-fledged video camera and you can live without the flip-out screen, the T2i's are in the $250 to $300 range on eBay, and they have the exact same sensor you get out of the EOS M. Uh, if you are looking to work on a budget and you want to include audio gear and everything else, one of the things I often recommend for people is to not consider an interchangeable lens camera and instead to consider a camera that has a built-in zoom. Uh, the Panasonic FZ1000 is an awesome example. That is a 4K shooting camera. It's a super zoom, so you have a zoom range. I believe it. it's equivalent to about uh, 400 millimeters on the long side and 24 millimeters zoomed in. And so that gives you a lot of range to work with. It's an F2.8 to F4. It's a, still a one-inch sensor, so you're going to not get as much shallow depth of feel. But you can buy that camera for in the range of about $650 to $700. Now you combine that with a $300 budget for audio, and now maybe you can buy a field recorder or an XLR adapter for your camera, as well as a basic road setup for like your uh, audio mic or whatever. So you can get all those things together and save and you don't have to worry about investing in lenses the downfall to buying an interchangeable lens camera is that you have to buy lenses and the lenses can be very expensive with the eos m there is the advantage that you can use a bunch of old lenses fd lenses all the way through but those are all manual focus so if you are looking to do photography or something like that, you may not be getting the best mix of both video and photography. With some of these super zoom cameras, you have a great lens built in, you have 4K video capability, you have all the other options, and it's $700 and it's one piece instead of buying a bunch of extra pieces to go along with it. And you really have to decide what are you going to film? You know, is, is having stuff in focus going to be okay? Or are you just going to be shooting corporate videos with talking heads all the time? Is F2.8 going to be wide enough for you? And how dark are you going to be shooting in? If you're going above 1600 ISO, well, 
then you're not going to be happy with any of the Rebel line or the EOS M, and you're going to have to move into a more expensive camera. If you're going below that and you have plenty of lighting and stuff like that, then those are the cameras to consider or one of these. Also, the Sony RX10 is an awesome 1080p camera that has everything all internally, and that's a 24 to 200 millimeter f2.8 equivalent all the way across. So now you have a super zoom. That's in the, I think they just dropped the price on that. It's down to $800, I believe. So, you know, those are other things. If you're in a budget, you kind of have to consider it. There isn't one like silver bullet that just answers everything. It's like, where are you at? What are you doing? And what are you going to film? Exactly. And if, and if you don't mind, I'm going to throw in a plug here because I created a course uh, some months ago called the Camera Conundrum, which discusses some of those uh, particular topics that you just mentioned. So if you want to find out about that, go to cameraconundrum.com. It's just a little plug. But it's, it's so difficult when people ask this question because there are so many different factors you have to consider that you just went through half a dozen of them, but there are bazillions of other things to think about. And it you really almost have to talk about it on a project level as opposed to, uh, oh, what's the cheapest camera under $500 that I should buy? Because it, it really depends upon whether you're shooting in low light, whether you want narrow depth of field, you know, so many different things. And so that's what I tried to cover in the cameraconundrum.com training. All right. That? I'm going to answer one question, one more question here and be sure to check out Mitch's uh, can, can camera conundrum site. That's uh, pretty cool stuff there. Um, this question is basically a follow up to the previous one. And this comes from uh same guy, actually power same steel. Uh, so he wanted to know accessories and a $500 limit. Well, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here so you guys can see what I'm looking at. The first thing I recommend to people, and this is an overlooked, uh, basically microphone. I know you can buy new. And again, I'm reaching for eBay because eBay is where I often go to save money. The Audio-Technica AT4073 was a super popular microphone for a news gathering. And because of that, everybody and their brother has one of these laying around. Every news station has one and they're constantly showing up on eBay. You can buy these guys for anywhere from 250 to here's one for 365 here's one with only a single bid for $49 they don't generally crack uh, the $500 mark for price and they're awesome microphones now if you can get one of those in the 250 range you can combine that with a either used or low budget uh, boom pole uh, several companies make them uh, pro pro aim is one of the companies that manufactures a bunch of them uh, road has some very reasonably priced ones you combine those together now you have your audio gear you need for miking your talent and then you need an xlr adapter to power that and then you have to decide if you want to plug it into your camera or not if you're going to plug it into your camera the best suggestion for uh, me is to probably go with a beach tech dta xlr i believe or no dxa slr <laughs> the dsa xlr is a small box and actually i'm looking at it right here i've got it off to the side um that will provide your phantom power for the microphone you can get those used for 120 to 130 dollars on ebay and now your budget you're just pushing the 400 dollars mark so now you have all the audio gear that leaves you just enough money to go buy a cheapo cowboy studios light kit and I know this isn't going to be the light kit that you use for life, and they're not that amazing, but it's good enough to get you started. 
You can go buy a two head um, double light set or a three light set for about 120 bucks to $100 depending, and that will get you enough light to start out with. Once you start developing your light techniques, you're going to want to invest more into you know good LED panels or better lighting. But for starters, light is often overlooked as an equipment purchase, and a $120 kit will definitely get you started. Mitch, what do you have in mind for accessories here as I've kind of like ran through everything? Well, you've, you've certainly blown this poor guy's budget of $500. Unfortunately, filmmaking is not cheap, right? Um, the microphones alone are going to run you $500. Lights, like you said, are going to be fairly cheap. I'm actually in my... Uh, observatory, as I call it downstairs, using Home Depot lights right now. And that's still run me 50 bucks or more for really, really cheap stuff because you have to have quite a few lights in order to make that happen. Uh, all kinds of different things that you need. What you, what you really need to focus on first, if you don't have them, of course, is DJ's favorite topic, lenses. Right? Yes. You know, you can you can buy the cheapest body you can and get a great sensor. We've talked about sensors out to death here, uh, but lenses is what you should really be investing the most in and hacking everything else together as inexpensively as possible with the accessories like DJ just outlined. I think those are all awesome picks. I guess, so Mitch, I think- how about two lenses? Name two lenses that you think people really need, say, let's say for a crop sensor camera. Um, Typically, I think if you're going to just limit yourself to two lenses, you're going to get a zoom or two zooms. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, primes tend to run you more money and everybody says shoot primes. But if you're trying to stick to a budget, I would go with the 24 to 70 uh, probably on the, the, the low end. Most filmmakers don't shoot really zoomy stuff. I mean, not zoomy close-ups. I'm currently using the 70 to 200 IS version 2 <laughs> to shoot a whole bunch of stills, but that's a $2,000 lens, so most people don't want to go in that direction. Um, so my second pick probably would be something in the 70 to 100 range. I don't know. Well, I'm going to throw a couple uh, out there for you. I sort of agree with Mitch, and I also disagree. I don't generally (laughs) preach primes to everybody. I know that's a very popular thing, but I do think that the, especially since you see all these videos on YouTube and you want to emulate that look, and people are like, well, man, look at the out-of-focus bokeh in the background. That looks so beautiful. That's what I really want. Well, that's fine. Get one good prime. And depending on what camera you're shooting on, if you're shooting on a full frame, you can start out with the ultra-cheap 51.8. Get the Mark II version. It's a little bit nicer than the Mark I version. And that's not a horrible lens to have. If you're shooting on a crop sensor body like a T2i or something like that, that is going to give you a little bit too much reach because you've got your crop factor calculation to go along with that. So... In that case, I would actually go to the older Sigma 30mm f1.4. 
that will give you the same look as the 5014 or 18 on a full frame body and you can pick that up for somewhere in the range of about 250 to $300. If you buy the new art version, you're going to spend an extra $200. So avoid that if you can and go with the cheaper one. A lot of people really love the look of that one and it's got some craziness, you know, it's got a uh, uh, kind of darkening on the edges that gives you a vignette that looks really nice and is is very enjoyable for a lot of people. For a zoom, and Mitch is absolutely right, get a good zoom. Um, you might not need the super reach to start out with because you're still kind of finding your way through filmmaking. So maybe consider something like the Tamron 17 to 50 millimeter f2.8 or their 25 to or 24 to 80 millimeter f2.8. You want to make sure that it's f2.8 across the focal length so that you don't get any darkening when you're zooming in and out. And if you do that, you can pick the uh, 17 to 50 up for. I'm looking at Amazon right now. It's 339.99 used and 4.99. New. So those two together will get you most of the range you need, plus it'll get you the shallow depth of field you're looking at on crop sensor body. If you are on a full frame body, you're going to want a little bit more reach. Sigma, uh, Tamron, and a number of other companies all offer up a 24 to 75, 24 to 80, and so on range that are pretty good for all around general shooting. Mitch, you have anything to add to that? Good golly, you've got it pretty well covered. Uh, I mean, the key there that you didn't really say was, you know, the aperture of the the 50, like 1.2 or 1.4 or 1.8, depending upon which one you want to go with. Uh, that's what's determining your awesome bokeh. And most zooms don't have those really low aperture settings. Uh, you know, most of them are 2.8 if you're lucky. Most of them, like, like did you notice the 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 one in the Canon, uh, the 4K thing that we talked about today uh, is like 17 millimeters to 85. I'm going to have to, I got to. Yeah. Now I'm bringing up the link just to make sure I'm on Uh, top of this here. I was was in it. it, It's insane. Where is it? Here it is. I'm presenting the view so everybody can see this. It looks like scrolling down here. It says 10X optical zoom. Uh, 8.9 millimeters to 89 millimeters. Now that's on a one inch crop sensor, and somebody did the math. Yeah, the it's other day 24 it's like, to 240 millimeter equivalent. Right, but then it's uh, the uh, the apertures uh, starts at 2.8, and then goes to 5.6 at the high end of that range. I'm like, God, that's a, that's a pretty nasty switch over to uh, 5.6 if you're starting out at 2.8. So it's obviously not a fixed aperture lens that goes all the way through the whole range. And that's on a crop, uh, smaller sensor, even smaller than a crop sensor. So you're talking one inch. So F2.8 isn't going to give you hardly any shallow depth of field at all. I mean, everything right. is going to be in focus F2.8 on a one inch sensor. And for those of you who aren't familiar with how that works, um, uh, go look for a depth of field chart. And there's actually a bunch of those online. Mitch might have one he prefers specifically. But you type in the sensor size, you type in the focal length, and then you type in the f-stop, and it tells you how much of your image is going to be in focus. With a one-inch sensor, f5.6, I mean, you might as well just say everything's in focus at that point. <laughs> well, uh, DSLR, eh, come on, Tom, DSLR Solutions, Eric uh, posted on Twitter yesterday that he actually calculated that. The DOF equivalent, the depth of field equivalent on this lens is f7.6, at the, which is the 2.8, uh, 
uh, it goes all the way up to F15.2. So high end of that, like you said, everything's going to be freaking in focus. Yeah. Uh, a lot of primes, guys, uh, stop down all the way as F16. So, right, I mean, right. that's as much as you can get in focus as possible. Uh, right. That's also a pitfall of uh, Micro Four Thirds is trying to get shallow depth of field out of that is a little tricky because you have to start going into F0.95 in order to get the same look as you would out of F1.8 or F2 on a full frame camera. Right. And so a lot of people may be really excited about 4K on this beast, but with a small sensor like that, you're obviously giving up many things, and it may not appeal to filmmakers that way. Well, on that note, guys, uh, more questions are popping up, but uh, I think we've answered enough and gone an extra 20 minutes. So... Mitch and I will be available on Twitter as usual. If you still have these questions, feel free to hit us up or leave them in the comment section on the YouTube video, and I'll try to answer them in the order they were received when I'm not in the midst of a move. Mitch, where can people find you? I'm over at uh, some website called planet5d.com, and I'm also at planetmitch.com, and I would like to urge people that if they're listening and watching and they're really enjoying what they're doing, Send DJ an email, make a comment somewhere. Uh, if you're watching or listening on iTunes and subscribing over there, rate it, please. I think SoundCloud has the ability to do rating, doesn't it? As yes, well, it does. On SoundCloud. So it really, really, really does help if you rate things so that people can potentially find it. And, of course, lastly but not leastly, tell your friends. If you're really enjoying what you're listening to, have them tune in live because we're doing them Friday and DJ also does them on Tuesdays, right? Uh, With, Sunday, uh, actually. So Sunday, right. the two days I have free a week are occupied by the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just trying to encourage you guys out there to share this widely with your friends so that more people get to tune into this awesomeness. One other thing to note, guys out there, uh, if you have stuff that you want to see in the show notes, let me know. I've been adding the show notes to the YouTube videos, and Mitch has been kind enough to do timestamps for everything. But also, for the audio listeners, if you do want a link to the show notes, let me know, and I can throw that in with the description. I don't know how that shows up on some devices, so you may have to still copy the link and paste it into your web browser in order to look at it. But I'll start making that available. Uh, send us any information that you want to see on the show. If you send questions in advance as opposed to posting them on YouTube, we can even get to them a little bit faster. Uh, live chat, still haven't done that yet. Sorry, that's all me. I am behind <laughs> the curve. But you can find the podcast under DSLR Film Noob. You can find us on Twitter. DSLR Film Noob is my handle or One Lone Dork on YouTube. And as always, guys, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next time on the DSLR Film Noob 